Welcome to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhamford.org. But we're chugging along here. We're going to be in Mark chapter 14 today. So if you got your Bibles, you can flip open to Mark, uh, Mark 14. Um, and uh, I just want you to, be, to know, I, this message in particular, this is, this is a heavy, heavy, heavy text and a heavy, heavy message as well. Um, and so if you're new with us, um, man, we, we, we do our best to preach through Scripture and we want to do our best to make sure that we are giving uh, credence to the Scripture that we're walking through. And so at the end of this, if you feel like I've just been like, I told, I forgot who I was talking to earlier, um, but I told someone, I was like, it just felt really heavy. Like I felt like I was just stepping on everybody's necks and refusing to let them get air. Um, so if it feels like that, uh, cool. Apparently my message is the same as, uh, as first service. Um, but uh, but the reality is, is we are entering into the last couple hours of the life of Jesus at this point. Um, and I know we've kind of been saying that as we've been walking through, you know, we went from uh, the upper room uh, and Jesus and his disciples, the institution of communion, all that stuff. And then last week, Pastor Jeff, he talked about uh, the Garden of Gethsemane and uh, uh, Jesus and his disciples and praying to the point of of, uh, of blood and sweat. And, um, and so now we're going to fast forward into, we're specifically it's going to start in verse 53 and we'll get there in a second, but we're going to fast forward into the trial of Jesus now. Um, and so before, before we get to that, that point, I just want to take a moment and, and think about the reality of what we would call the historical Jesus. So when you're walking through and you're, uh, you're, you're getting your, your pastor's degree and all that stuff, you're going through seminary, um, they have you study Jesus in two different ways. There's what's called the historical Jesus, and the historical Jesus is largely just what you would assume, right? The, it was there historically a man uh, who lived and uh, who lived in Nazareth, who was named Jesus, Jesus who lived and died. That would be the the historical study of Jesus. And so that's one side of it. It's the human side of Jesus. But then also, obviously, as you're becoming a pastor, you also study the divine side of Jesus as well. So we have a historical Jesus and we have, we have a, uh, a divine Jesus. And so even if you're not a Christian here this morning, I just maybe want you to think about the belief systems around the world that are predicated on, on, on the life, the death, and the resurrection of, of Christ, of this, of this man. Because currently, right now, and this is best guess, they didn't talk to everybody, but uh, there are about 2.4 billion people in the world who would call themselves followers of Christ. 2.4 billion people. That's, that was 2020, so hopefully it's higher um, by now, which is a lot. But the sad thing is, is actually by best, best estimates, there's over a billion people in the world, closer to 1.5 billion people in the world, who have never heard the name of Jesus and have no knowledge of the gospel of Christ. So that's not such good news. That's, that's a lot of people. But the reality is that means there's over 6 billion people who have heard the name of Jesus and at least have some knowledge of, of the gospel. That's a lot of people. There's, there's even crazier statistics about just the reality of who Jesus is. Uh, did you know that in America, uh, people have the opportunity in America to hear about the gospel of Jesus on average 365 times? I'm sure it was like 370, but they were like, no, 365 sounds better. Every single day you can hear about the gospel of Christ on average. And that sounds really good until you get to Mexico statistics. And Mexico, in Mexico, you can hear about the gospel of Jesus over 800 times a year, right? That's crazy. 
And there's math involved, but I know it's at least twice a year or twice a day for the entire year you could hear about, uh, about Jesus. So this guy, this, this guy has shaken the very fabric of our culture. The Christian church in America, you know, the Christian church in America receives annually $378 billion a year. Billion with, with a B. It's by far the wealthiest of all religions in the world. Beyond that, Christians, people who follow Jesus, actually earn $5.2 trillion in the U.S. Christians alone in the U.S. earn $5.2 trillion. And because of that, the majority of money that is donated is actually donated to churches. Not nonprofits, not anything else. Donated specifically to churches. Why am I sharing with you? any of this is to you. The reality is in this is that, that because of one man's life, one man's death, one man's resurrection, the very nature of the entire world has shifted, right? Everything that most of us in this room believe depends on not only the reliability of scripture and Jesus going to the cross, but beyond that, and more importantly, this God-man conquering death and being raised from the dead. Everything that a Christian believes, everything that a Christian stands for, everything many of us have predicated our values, beliefs, and lives on is based on these last few hours of Jesus's life and based on the last few hours of his eventual resurrection. And I share all of this to, to get to today because what we see should both deepen our belief that we have in Jesus as well as our reverence for the Savior of the world. And so like I said, last week, Pastor Jeff, he talked about the narrative in the Garden of Gethsemane and as we continue to approach the cross, we continue to see both Jesus' humanity as well as Jesus' divinity in different respects. So the question we need to answer this morning is not whether or not we believe in Jesus. I think the question that we actually need to answer this morning is, what do we believe about Jesus? Not do we believe in the historical Jesus. There's actually very little doubt in the world that a man named Jesus lived and taught and died. You would actually be hard-pressed to find somebody in Western Christian culture, or Western culture rather, who would refute the fact that such a man did exist. So that's good, good news. Rarely do any of us have to debate with others about the historicity of the Son of God. No one, no one disputes that. At least most people don't dispute that. But do we actually believe then what Scripture tells us, which is that he miraculously rose from the grave on the third day? And... If we do believe that, what are the implications for that in our lives? Because if you only believe in the historical Jesus and you don't believe in the divine Jesus, you can, can kind of continue to go about your life in, in any way, shape, or form you desire. It largely doesn't matter if you only believe in the historical Jesus. He would impact your life maybe as much as Abraham Lincoln currently impacts your life. Right? You can look back on him and you can maybe respect what he did, but as far as your day-to-day -day life goes, none of it really matters. You aren't thinking about Abraham Lincoln before you make a big decision in your life. The difference is, if you believe not only in the historical Jesus, but in the divine Jesus as well, the one that 1 Corinthians 6.14 tells us conquered death and God raised him up from the dead. If you believe that the resurrection of Christ is indeed 
real, then it has massive implications for your entire life. Nothing you do, nothing you say, nothing you believe should ever be, be the same because of the fact that God sent his son not only to die on the cross, but also to be resurrected from the dead for each and every one of us. And today, we get to enter into the trial that is ultimately going to see him up on that cross. So we're going to start in verse 53. This is what it says. It says, they took Jesus to the high priest. Okay, who's they? Remember, Garden of Gethsemane, the guards come. Peter lops off a dude's ear. Jesus is like, hey, that's not what this is about. Heals the ear. They take him now to the high priest. And all the chief priests, the elders and the teachers of the law came together. It's actually really comical. I think it's verses 51 or 52. I was talking to one of our small groups about this earlier this week. That in verses 51 or 52, if you go just back before this text, there's actually a little note in there about a guy who was kind of following them. And then the guards tried to grab him. They grabbed his cloak and then he got away and he ran away naked, right? It's kind of a weird thing that you see in there. Nobody ever talks about that when they're talking about Jesus being led away to trial. Like, why was there a naked guy running away from the guards? Okay. Most people actually believe this is, this is Mark. This is the, the author of this gospel. And he was like, hey, guys, remember that naked guy who was running away from the guards? That was me. I was right there. It doesn't say it explicitly, but it's comical. So now they're taking Jesus from that place to the chief priests and all the high priests. Verse 54, Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warned him, or warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. If you're an underliner or a highlighter in your Bible, underline that part, that they were looking for evidence but did not find any. Verse 56, many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands. And in three days, we'll build another not made with hands. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. So then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony and these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked them, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Verse 62, I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophecy. And the guards took him and beat him. So... Let's break this up a little bit, because like I said, this is a heavy, heavy text. Okay, this is, as you see at the very end, the very beginning of the brutality that's going to mark the remainder of Jesus' life until his death and then his resurrection afterwards. So let's set it up. It's late at night, most likely actually early hours in the morning. Okay, Jesus has just been betrayed by Judas. Remember, we had the upper room dialogue. Jesus institutes communion. Jesus is like, hey, whoever I dip this bread in the cup with, that is the person who's going to betray me. Judas runs away. So Judas at this point has already betrayed Jesus, taught, brought the temple guard out into the garden. Judas is off counting his silver somewhere uh, in the corner. And so Jesus now at this point, he's abandoned by all of his disciples. He's manhandled by the temple guard. And Jesus had just been brought into the courtyard of a guy by the name of Caiaphas's just massive palatial home. 
We know that other accounts, it tells us that, that they first went to the house of Annas. Annas is the former high priest and Caiaphas' father-in-law. And nothing like keeping it in the family, right? Caiaphas, the name Caiaphas actually means interrogator. So I don't know if his parents intentionally named him that or if that was a name that he received later on. But my kid's name, Cooper, means barrel maker. So I don't know how that's going to go for him. But it sounds like he must have been really good at his job. Okay, because actually Caiaphas held this position for over 19 years. Okay, so he's probably pretty decent. And he's actually, though, a religious fraud because everything about this trial, what we are about to see, is completely and totally corrupt. This congregation of religious leaders that we see was anything but holy. Ever since Mark chapter 3, verse 6, these guys had sought to put Jesus to death. You want to see the turning point of when all of the Pharisees, the religious leaders are like, that guy needs to die. Mark chapter 3, turn back 11 chapters in scripture. That's where it tells us that for the first time. They sought to put Jesus to death. They were simply waiting for the opportune moment and now that moment had finally presented itself. So that's what we have going on. But then, then Peter, meanwhile, has kind of followed from a distance. Followed from a distance and, and is now kind of in an area below, further away from everybody else, warming himself by a fire. It actually tells him that he's warming himself by a fire with guards around him. Seems a little bit strange for a guy who just tried to cut off one of their ears, right? And all of a sudden he's like, ah, oh, nah, we're cool. You guys want to hang out with me over by, over by a fire? It's actually... Pretty courageous on Peter's part, I feel like. For a guy who gets a bad rap in this part of the, the story, you know, maybe after he fled away from Jesus, he washes his sword off from ear blood. His conscience maybe struck him and decided that, you know what, I'm going to go die with the Lord. So he follows the crowd. And the fact that he was sitting by a fire tells us he's willing to be seen, right? I mean, if you're trying to hide out in the middle of the night when it's dark outside, you don't go sit next to a, a fire. But Peter's going to be condemned as well. But this is as close as Peter's going to get to him. Peter meant well. He wanted to be next to Jesus, wanted to hang out by Jesus, wanted to make sure he could be there. But all that kind of sleeping in Gethsemane did very little to prepare him to stand firm. And then in verses 55 to 59, we are introduced to this council who's ultimately going to try Jesus. And a pretty good-sized crowd has assembled at this point, which is weird because it's the middle of the night. I don't know about you guys, but I'm not waking up at 3 a.m. to go to like a trial. Right? And so it's, it's the middle of the night, and, and this crowd comes in, and there's a quorum for the Sanhedrin. And this has been a bunch of, bunch of chief priests and elders and scribes, all of whom are trying to get rid of Jesus. And then, so this judicial council of Jerusalem, this Sanhedrin, they're bound to rules. All of them are bound to rules, right? In the same way that like when we have an executive board or something like that, or you guys, many of you have probably sat on boards before in your life and that sort of thing, you're like, oh, we are bound by rules that we have to follow. This is also true of the Sanhedrin. So this is one of the ways we can say this entire trial was a sham because among these rules, no trial was supposed to be held at night, okay? Strike one, right? This trial is being literally held in the middle of the night. All trials are supposed to be held at the temple precinct. This is not being held at the temple precinct. This is being held at Caiaphas' house, the high priest's home. And capital trials like this could not take place during Passover. And as we know, what we studied a couple weeks ago, this is in the middle, the night of Passover. This entire trial is a sham. But facts and justice aren't their concern. Their only concern is getting rid of Jesus. That's all they care about. 
So among this kind of group of people who are represented, there is a bunch of witnesses. And it seems clear that the hearing can kind of been arranged in conjunction with their deal with Judas. It was like, okay, Judas, you're going to go, you're going to go make sure that we can get the temple guard to him. They're going to get him. And then we're going to be ready over here, ready to go. And so they gathered the witnesses. The issue becomes, though, all the witnesses had different stories. All of them had different testimonies. It says in verses 50, verse 56, that their testimony didn't agree. They can't line their, their stories off. Small wonder, since we're told that they bore false witness against them, right? A consistency of lies is incredibly hard to maintain for a long time, right? Well, tell me the story again. Tell me the story again. Don't blame me. Ask any three-year-old who said they didn't eat any cookies, right? Every single time. Every single time. Tell me that story one more time. Tell me that story one more time. The story is going to change, right? Well, no, it was my brother, okay? It wasn't my brother. It was my dog. Like, whatever, whatever it may have been. That may or not be a true story. So, according though to Old Testament law, the charge had to be confirmed by two or three witnesses. It couldn't just be one man's word against another. It had to be two or three witnesses. This trial's not going well. This trial is, is actually a travesty. And so those responsible for truth, these guys in the Sanhedrin, are completely and totally ignoring the truth. Now, of course, we understand the hypocrisy early on. We learned back in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, that all they wanted to do was get rid of Jesus. This probably wouldn't have been, been, been readily seen by everybody. We can see it kind of now. So these guys are just completely and totally ignoring it. Their minds are already made up, and so there was no need to present any sort of facts whatsoever. Their sole purpose in following the letter of the law when it came to corroborating witnesses and making sure these witnesses said the things they should, they should say was to protect their preconceived verdict. Make sure that at the end of this thing, we can say that he is guilty. So they switch their tactic when the stories aren't starting to line up. They're like, hey, these testimonies don't really jive. So they switch their tactic and they, they, at their next kind of unjust attempt to get Jesus uh, killed. And so it's concerning the allegation that Jesus claimed that, that, that he said, I would destroy this temple that is made with hands and in three days I will build another not made with hands. This is kind of a, a deliberate ploy to make the charge stick, making it look like that, that Jesus had come to overthrow the worship of God in some kind of way, shape, or form. Reading between the lines, the reality is the Sanhedrin understood exactly what he, he was saying. They're saying, hey, look, this time where you guys are in charge where you guys are doing your best to, to force people under, under a law that really isn't what Jesus and God had intended in the first place, the time for Jerusalem's supremacy is largely coming to an end, including the temple. Actually, in fact, even though they didn't know it, this council was serving to fulfill Jesus' words of that very parable. And so something we need to understand then is in the, in the ancient world, back in biblical times, to destroy a religious temple was an ultimate act of sacrilege. It was one of the worst things you can do. The Jews literally viewed the temple as the dwelling place of God. That is where God lived, right? In the same way that people often think, oh, God lives at church. That's why I can't cuss at church. It's one of the funniest things when someone cusses in front of me at church, like, oh, I'm sorry. It's like, yeah, God lives here. You better be careful. But this is literally what the Jews, Jews believed, right? And it would also be kind of seen by the Romans as an act of political upheaval. That this also would have been an issue. So it seems that their kind of open and shut case at this point was in not, in fact, indeed open and shut. So again, they pursued another course. Their intention to kill Jesus was not going to be denied. 
So they try to make Jesus implicate himself at that point, force him to say something that was going to allow them to murder him. And so Jesus stays completely silent for a really long time. All these charges are coming up against him, and he just remains stoic, right? Not saying a word at all. And then they ask him, are you the son of God? And did you catch the pause when I was reading it when Jesus says, I am? Those are incredibly powerful words, not just in Christian tradition, Christian religion, but also in the Jewish religion as well. Burning bush, who do I say that God, who do, who do I say that sent me? Tell them I am sent me. It's the literal name that God gives himself. There's power in those words. And so Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds in heaven. I don't know about you, but that's an incredibly kind of intimidating scene. To have Jesus, who has just been led away, probably been punched a couple times on the way, to this council who's sitting there stoic, quiet, as we have false testimony after false testimony after false testimony coming at him. And he doesn't say a word the entire time. My mind's eye, his head is kind of hung down. And they ask him, are you the son of God? And he just looks up and he says, I am. And then continues on with the rest of the sentence. He didn't owe justification to his enemies or anything like that. They had already made his minds up about him. There was nothing Jesus could do at this point to to change any of their minds. So he simply stays stoic until it was time for him to make a profession of faith at that point. Jesus is silent and then he confidently declares who he is. He knew he was going to die. But he also knew that he was going to rule and reign as well. And so this confidence that that he has kind of provided calmness in this time of, of difficulty. This time of tumult or calamity, like the prison is the, or the prisoner rather, is the one who is in control of this entire thing. We largely should learn from this that our confidence when facing trial depends on our confidence in Jesus being who he said he was, not being who you think you are. Jesus had no doubt about where all of this was heading. Jesus had prophesied his betrayal, his arrest, his crucifixion. Right? He knew about his resurrection. He knew about his ascension. He came preaching the arrival of God's kingdom, and he was aware that he was king of that kingdom. In the face of every possible adversity, Jesus was confident of the outcome. And this doesn't mean that he didn't feel immense suffering. We saw it in, in Gethsemane, that he was deeply distressed, distressed even to the point of death is the, the words that are used. And so he contemplated becoming sin and consequently knowing that he would be abandoned by God and he sorrowed to the point of death. It was killing him, but he's confident. Why? Because he knows what's about to happen. He knows what God is about to do. And the entire passage ends with Caiaphas ripping his clothes. He rips his clothes, he condemns Jesus, and then the brutality begins. Even the mockery begins at that point as they spit at him, as they beat him, and they say prophecy in just a mocking tone. This brutality, like I said, it's not going to let up until he eventually succumbs to death on Good Friday. It's a heavy passage. And normally at this point I would talk about kind of the application this text has for our lives. Right? Not just this text, but any text large that we're going through, we'd, we would read the scripture, we would talk about the scripture and say, okay, how does, this, how does this now kind of apply to us? And while we can definitely maybe talk about the idea of being blameless and becoming more holy and how we should witness maybe in the face of adversity, that's not where I want to go today. 
Actually, today, I just kind of I just kind of want us to sit in this scene and feel the heaviness of this scene. We have to recognize that this passage, this passage simply demonstrates what Jesus was willing to endure for the sake of his creation. What he was willing to endure for our sake. See, Jesus was, Jesus was blameless. No charge could be brought up against him that had any merit. The only reason he was there is because a whole bunch of people were afraid that they were going to lose their power and position. Blameless. And condemned to death. So instead of applying this passage to our lives, I think this is where we need to sit in the question of do you believe in the historical Jesus or do you believe in the divine Jesus? And I think it's a real question that we, that we need to answer. Let me lay it out for you very, very clearly today. Why, why, did G, why was he here in the first place? Because if we believe in the divine Jesus, we, we need to re- get to that answer. Uh, uh, why did he come? Or maybe you only believe in the historical Jesus. And you're like, well, tell me, tell me about then his his divinity. Okay, let, let's go back to the beginning then. Let's go back to, to a Christian's baseline understanding of the way that the world operates. We recognize that in Genesis chapter 3, that, that, that God's creation sinned. We have to start with the understanding that we are inherently sinful. It makes it clear that we are both guilty of the sin that we inherited from Adam as well as have a sin nature that makes, us, makes it impossible for us to be holy. It's impossible for us to be holy. Every single one of us are sinful. Kyle brought his really cute little baby Nash. They call him Nash Potato. It's a great nickname. They call him Tater Tot. Is all of it food-based nicknames? Yeah, okay. I would expect nothing less, Kyle. But they brought little baby Nash, and, and, and Pastor Brian, he had their baby Theo, and there's a whole nursery over there full of babies, right? We got, we got preschoolers over there. We got kindergarten through fifth graders back here. We got junior hires back there. And guess what? Every single one of them from, from the eighth grader all the way down to little baby Nash Potato are completely and totally inherently sinful. That's hard because you start naming names about it, right? You start talking about, well, hold on. You're saying my baby is sinful. My baby who is, quote, objectively the cutest baby in the entire world is sinful, that's what you're telling me? Yeah, that's our baseline understanding in Christianity. That every single one of us is inherently sinful. And so because of that sin and because of that sin nature, there is nothing that you and I can do in order to get to heaven. It doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how sober you are, how pure your eyes are, how philanthropic you are, how good of a parent that you are, even how much you talk about Jesus. There is nothing that you or I can do to earn our way into heaven. That's it. Again, Christian baseline understanding of the way that the world works. That's why it should be really easy for the Christian to answer the question, is a man inherently good or bad? Bad. Next question. We've known that since Genesis chapter 3. That shouldn't be a shock or a surprise to anybody who follows Jesus. 
And so the crazy thing is, is the remainder of the Old Testament is completely and totally littered with God showing man that any attempt he makes to get to heaven apart from him is futile. You can't make it. Laws don't make you good. Prophets don't make you good. Rulers, kings don't make you good. And God knew this. So God then, in his own divine timing, decided when it was right to redeem the world. But God's perfect. God, God can't have sin near him because he is so holy. He's perfect. And because of the fact that God is holy, God is also perfectly just, which means a price had to be paid for the sin that is in our lives. Well, what is the price then? Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. The price of sin is death. That every single one of us, from the time that baby Nash Potato made his arrival into the world, that he could do nothing to get to heaven apart from the grace of God. So what's the price of sin? Death, both a physical as well as a spiritual death. This is why Jesus is so overwhelmed that he is literally becoming our sin, that there's gonna be separation for the first time between him and the Father. Why? Because he is interceding on our behalf. So in order for God to remain perfectly just, while at the same time not destroying his creation, God provides a substitute for all the sin of all mankind in his son, Jesus. The theological term for that is propitiation. Jesus gets born into the world the manifestation of God in the flesh, born in a barn while fulfilling a prophecy from 700 years prior, born to a virgin, raised by a carpenter, only to start his ministry at 30 years old, make tidal wave-sized disruptions to the religious elite, only to be sacrificed on the cross so that God's wrath could be justified and his holiness remain intact. That's it. And here's the beauty of the entire thing. If you follow that entire math equation that we just put together, here's the beauty of it. All he asks of us is that we repent and believe. That's it. Repent and believe. And we like to focus on that believe word quite a bit. Right? We even pray the ABCs in a second we're going to do that. And we even talk about like our belief in Christ, our desire to follow him every day. And while belief is necessary, so is repentance. That A where we start with admit, believe, choose, the ABCs, right? Admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Admit that, that I sin on a regular basis. And because of that, I am in need of a Savior. I repent of that of that sin. So repentance is necessary. So now this is where we need to make a choice about what we believe about Jesus. The historical Jesus demands nothing of you or your conscience. Demands nothing of it. The, the divine Jesus demands everything because that's what he gave in the first place. The divine Jesus loves you so much that he, he demands living in a way that is contrary to cultural norms. The divine Jesus hates sin so much that he wants you to have none of it. The divine Jesus offers a life that is so much more fulfilling than anything else you could ever imagine. Because of that, because of that, he sets up the church as plan A for the entire world to know about him. 
And so it's our job then to dust ourselves off, repent of our sins, and go and make his name known to people in the world who only know Jesus as a historical figure, not a divine one. Not as the Messiah who came to conquer your sins so you can live. Let me finish with this. When I was, uh, when I was heading into college, I think it was March uh, of my senior year, and uh, it wasn't my first choice of school, but it was the school that chose me, um, uh, was Chico State. I was like, I'm going to Chico State. And you say Chico State, and there's some preconceived notions about Chico State. Um, it's a party school. Um, it is a party school. And as, as March was rolling around and I had gotten accepted into Chico and I was trying to wrap my mind around largely, like, who is it that I am going to be? Kind of that crisis of faith that all of us at some point have to wrestle with, right? Is this my parents' faith? Is it my faith? Is it grandma's faith? Do I go to church on Christmas and Easter largely because that's what I'm supposed to do? And I venture to say, if that's you, that's probably you're falling into the historical Jesus camp of like, yeah, I believe there was a guy who lived. Like, yeah, I believe in God, but really he's not Lord of my life. I don't, because I, if he was Lord of your life, you would largely believe in the divine Jesus. And so I'm wrestling with these things of like, who is it that I'm going to be? Because largely I feel like, yeah, I could go to a party on Tuesday night and drink all I wanted to drink because it's Chico and there's parties every night of the week. And then Wednesday I could do my best to just go and, and go to Campus Crusade for Christ and talk about Jesus and sing the songs about Jesus and then do whatever it is I want to do the next day and just on and on and on. Maybe I go to, go to a church on, on Sunday, but not too early. I'm not going to go to church too early because I'm probably going to go hang out and party on a Saturday night somewhere. And so I'm like wrestling with this identity. Like, yeah, I could still be cool. I could still fit in and be accepted by this culture that's all about just like, hey, do whatever you want to do. There's no implications in your life about Jesus because he's just a historical figure. You don't need to worry about it. And so I'm having this conversation with one of my best friends, and he was like, you don't, what? You don't get, like, you can't do both of those things. That's not okay. You have to pick a side at some point. And I wish I could say that after that conversation in March that I was like, yep, picked a side. I'm going to love Jesus forever and never sin again. We all know that's not true. But what did it have to look like for me when I went to Chico? Because I did make a decision. I decided I'm going to do my best to honor God with my life. I'm going to do my best to turn Chico State into a Christian school. It's not, by the way. But I did find out a guy uh, who was there 2006 to 2008, who was a couple years after me, he said, hey, they didn't make the top 25 for party schools, so maybe your influence had something to do with it. I was like, I appreciate that. It absolutely did not. Because for me, what it looked like is if I was going to honor God with my life to the best of my ability, that I was going to do my best to kind of flee from a lot of that stuff. But I ended up fleeing so hard that I ended up isolating myself from a world who desperately needed Jesus, who desperately needed to know about Jesus. So I became a social recluse, did my best to like find a community, find a church, find different things like that, which are all good things on the outside. But at the end of the day, I largely sacrificed the influence that I had for making sure that I was going to do my best to be a moral person. Regardless, though, I had to choose what I wanted to do, what I wanted to believe about Jesus. 
So like I said, the question this morning isn't whether or not you believe in Jesus. It's what it is that you believe about him. I'm assuming you know where I landed. I'm a pastor and not the president of a fraternity. Um, I don't even know if that's a job. But the question remains for you this morning. What camp are you landing in today? Because having an opinion and having a, a belief about Jesus is not optional. All of us are going to be called to account for our lives when we get to, get to the end of them one day. Amen? Let's pray. Father, that's a, that's a hard text, Lord. And so, God, we, we thank you for hard passages where we recognize the divinity of your Son. And we recognize what he was willing to do on our behalf. And so, God, I just pray that you would reveal the spaces in our hearts where we're only assuming Jesus as historical instead of divine. Where we say things like, I, well, I respect him as a teacher, but I don't believe he was raised from the dead. Or even we act in such a way that Jesus didn't do what your word tells us that he did. So, Father, I pray we would just repent of that today. Repent of areas where we're falling short. Holy Spirit, just, just show us right now in the quietness of our hearts, where is it that we need to repent of Jesus not being the Lord of our lives, not being divine? With heads still bowed and eyes still closed, if you've never said yes to Jesus before, if you've never made that kind of profession of faith where you recognize that Jesus isn't just historical, Jesus is divine, and I want to make sure that I live as such. If that's you, you can simply pray along with me. Quietness of your heart, say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I admit that. I repent of that sin. But B, I believe you sent your son to die on a cross for me to be the propitiation of my sin. And Father, see, I would choose to follow divine Jesus every single day of my life. We love you, Father. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.